0: Hello and welcome to the BPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, here today with a very special guest, Michael Tomaski. Michael, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Michael Tomaski is an American columnist, commentator, journalist, and author. He is the editor-in-chief of Democracy, a special correspondent for Newsweek slash The Daily Beast, a contributing editor for The American Prospect, and a contributor to the New York Review of Books. His new book, If We Can Keep It, is a game-changing account of the deep roots of political polarization in America, including an audacious 14-point agenda for how to fix it. And yeah, we're just going to discuss uh, some of the things, some of the ideas in his book today. So Michael, when, when examining the history of political polarization in the US, you point to Martin Van Buren as one of the architects of the modern political party, due to his work on Andrew Jackson's 1828 presidential campaign. Uh, Can you explain a bit about how his work led to our current system?
1: Sure. Well, uh, Van Buren, first of all, (coughs) he's a figure who's mostly lost to uh, American history. I mean, everybody knows he was a president. Uh, Everybody knows he was one of those guys who came before Lincoln who are kind of indistinguishable from one another, except that he had those big sideburns. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I would guess that a lot of people don't know much about him beyond that. He was an unsuccessful president. He was a one-term president. Uh, he followed Andrew Jackson, but um, he had the misfortune to come uh, into office during a uh, uh, an economic downturn, a recession, and it never really got much better, and he got voted out after one term. But that doesn't begin to describe his importance. He was a senator for a long time. He was a secretary of state. He was a vice president. He was a real player. Mm-hmm. He, he's the kind of... He was the kind of senator who, if he were around today, I write in the book, he'd be on Morning Joe twice a week, and he'd be on Meet the Press all the time. He was that kind of figure. So he, uh, he uh, well, after the 1824 election, which was one of the most hotly disputed elections in our history, John Quincy Adams versus Andrew Jackson versus a couple of others, Jackson actually got the most popular votes, but... Several weeks later, through a lot of finagling, John Quincy Adams became the president. And Martin Van Buren decided at that point that he was going to go out uh, and uh, create a new political party. Uh, And so to make a long story short, I go into all of it in the book, but to make a long story short, he pulled together the forces that became the modern Democratic Party. Uh, I've been saying to audiences as I've been going around, uh, you know, Democrats call their dinner the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. They really ought to call it the Van Buren Day dinner. He's the guy who created the party. What he did that was new also, Jeff, was that he created the sense of, uh, he he created a sense of politics as participatory and fun. That was his idea of what a political party should be. That idea didn't really exist. Until Van Buren, so I say in the book that yeah, he is in some sense we might call him the godfather of political polarization because he he created the first party that was uh, that was designed to like uh, you know um um you know go out there and win elections at all costs.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think at the time, just in your opinion, do you think he could foresee what it, you know the political parties, <laughs> what the system would become, or was he just sort of doing the work that he thought? best the time. Uh,
1: I don't know. I, you know, he's a smart man and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he could have foreseen it. So his career continued for a long time, uh, up into the 1850s until he passed away. But he was, uh, in the 1820s, he, he made the democratic party consciously a party that, uh, kind of winked at the slavery issue. He joined North and South together to form a national winning coalition. Uh, and but by the 1840s he became more personally opposed to slavery and personally well he was always personally opposed to it but but became more personally committed to the idea that it couldn't exist much longer so he joined an offshoot party uh the free soil party that was a an avowedly anti-slavery party and then you know he uh, yeah i mean uh, he lived through the period the 1850s that was probably the most divided in our country's history, except for our time. So, mm-hmm. I, I bet you, if he came back today, uh, maybe a lot of it wouldn't shock him that much.
0: Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. very interesting. And uh, yeah, to your point, I I can't say I gleaned really any of that from you know my public <laughs> school education well. in terms of what Van Buren did. So it was very interesting to yeah. to read about.
1: Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you found it that way.
0: Yeah. yeah. So a different topic here, which you also tackle in the book, um, involves debt and and consumerism. You point to the 1978, uh, it's the Marquette uh, National Bank of Minneapolis versus the Omaha Service Corporation uh, case, Uh, sort of a quiet landmark decision that impacted the proliferation of credit card debt in the US. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit on that case and its effects?
1: Sure. First of all, people must be wondering what kind of book joins Martin Van Buren along with this weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope a book that is has a lot of range and covers a lot of territory. Exactly. Uh, would be my uh, preferred answer. But this is in the, the. I mentioned this case in the context of a chapter where uh, I'm talking about. <clears throat> how we became a more consumerist culture in the 1980s was the most obvious decade, you know, the greed decade, greed is good and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to the 1970s and the period of dramatic inflation, and that's where the chapter starts. Uh, And then I talk about things like the great expansion of credit in the country in the 1970s and 80s, and that's where this case comes in, Mm -hmm. Supreme Court decision of 1978. Doesn't stand in time with... uh, you know, Roe v. Wade or Brown v. Board or any of the ones that we know mm-hmm. uh, uh, off the top of our heads. But it was it set off a revolution every bit as much as those mm-hmm. did. Uh, without going too much into the horribly dull details of <laughs> it, because it was one bank suing another bank. Right? Right. How <laughs> exciting is that? There were probably three people in the galleries that day. Uh, but the the court held that a federal bank could not be subject to state usury laws. And what significance did that have? Well, you know how Citibank is like, quote unquote, in South Dakota? Mm-hmm. That dates to this decision. Because they could all then, they could all issue credit cards from states that didn't have any limits on their on their interest rates. And that's what started the credit boom in this country. and. And as I say, I I point out, in 1970, there was functionally zero cumulative credit card debt among Americans in this country. And by 1980, there was however many tens of billions. And by 1990, there was however many hundreds of billions, uh, and so on and so on. So it really changed things. And it changed us. And and it changed our politics. And it created a whole new set of issues that that politicians had to respond to. It gave a lot more power to the banks. Mm -hmm. And it, it just set in motion a whole bunch of things that I discussed in the book that that did help feed uh, our social division, which has been a part of our polarization story.
0: It, it's, it, yeah, another very interesting topic and, and something that, you know, as a millennial was sort of hard to, to grasp. Um, credit card, uh, you know, yeah. credit and credit card debt has been so normalized in, in my entire lifetime that yeah. um, it was interesting to see that this was sort of you know, one of the catalysts for it, for that.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I, I mean, I'm close to 60. I remember when my dad, who was a lawyer, you know, he, he made good money. Um, we weren't rich or anything, but he made good money. But I remember when he got his first credit card and I thought, Oh my God, wow. What a moment. This
0: yeah. Is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, you know, every day in the mail, you're getting yeah, right. <laughs> two, three offers for That's you know, a exactly. new credit card and whatnot. Yeah. It's very, yeah, very different. So looking at, uh, some of your, you know, or suggested solutions, and if we can keep it. So at the beginning of the book, you propose a 14-point agenda to reduce polarization in American politics. Um, You include political fixes, like eliminating the filibuster, as well as social and cultural fixes. Um, Do you you envision, in the near future, um, any progress on any particular points? Are you particularly hopeful about any of these 14 points as far as near-term, near-future progress?
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say no, <laughs> sure, <laughs> but I can't in complete honesty say yes. I mean, so, uh, you know, I, the first six chapters of this book go through a history of the country that is not a complete history of the United States, obviously, but is a, is a history of what I take to be the relative data points in telling readers how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then the last chapter says, okay, what can we do about this? And as you say, there are 14 ideas I came up with and I, I, you know, I, I am honest with readers and I say, you know, this, I don't know that these things are, these things are certainly not going to happen overnight and they're probably not going to happen in two years or three years, but you know, they might happen uh, in, in the near future, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, eliminating the Senate filibuster, by itself, it won't necessarily fix that much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it, it can help because everything just gets so bottled up in the Senate these days. And yes, some people are listening now saying, but to you, the Senate was designed to be the place where everything slowed down. And yes, it was. But not like this, not like this. The, the the filibuster wasn't in the Constitution. The filibuster wasn't envisioned by the founding fathers. Uh, the filibuster gives the minority power over the majority because it takes 60 senators to pass something. So in other words, 41 senators can block something, right? Mm-hmm. This is not what the founders envisioned, and the filibuster actually came along in the 1830s, but it was very, very rarely used, and and then it hasn't been used uh, with any regularity until the last 30 years, really. So it's totally out of control. It's not what was in the Constitution. It's not what the founders wanted. If we took it away, uh, a lot more could get done. Now some of that would be bad, depending on your politi- political perspective. I mm-hmm. mean. If there were no filibuster today, and Mitch McConnell probably had it in his power to have it removed. I'm not sure of that, but maybe. Uh, Trump and the Republicans, in the, not now with the Democrats having taken the House, but in the first two years of Trump, they could have passed all kinds of stuff. All kinds right. of stuff right. that Democrats and liberals wouldn't like. Mm-hmm. But then the argument would be, once there's a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate majority, they could go in and unpass all that stuff and mm-hmm. pass their stuff. That's what happens in other systems of government. Mm-hmm. It's 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 it majority rules. It's okay. It shouldn't take 60 people to do something. So that would un unjam things a little bit. But I think doing something about the gerrymandering, uh, the horrible mm-hmm. gerrymandering, which I mentioned in the book, and uh, and you know getting rid of the Electoral College would help. Uh, Uh, you know, uh, electing members, and this is maybe deeper in the weeds than we have time to get into here, but we elect our members by single-member districts, which we have geographic districts, and the person who gets the most votes in that district wins Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at the federal level in the House of Representatives. Uh, Most advanced democracies don't do that. Most do other things. They either have parliamentary systems or they have some kind of combination. If we had something like that, and it were designed in the right way, Jeff. It could produce more moderate members of the House rather than people who are just in these districts that are drawn so carefully that they never have to go get a vote mm-hmm. from a, a voter in the other party. So there are a lot of steps like that. But, you know, it takes time to build public awareness of and support for these things.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you mentioned, you know, a few of the... The uh, solutions you propose on the political side, and and also the, some of the uh, the social and cultural ones, um, were very interesting to me. Uh, in terms of and, and those, um, you know, may take a bit longer. Those seem more ingrained, but ideas that I think could help um, sort of lessen the urban and rural divide. You mentioned um, a sort of exchange system and yeah. schools, right?
1: Yes. Um, well, you know, I just got to thinking while I was writing it. Well, you know. In the 40s, when the world first shrunk, quote unquote, and we had the United Nations uh, and so on, we developed, we the United States, developed a lot of these student cultural exchange programs, right? Because we were, and it had to do with the Cold War as well in competition with the Soviet Union. But, you know, we, we developed these programs where kids from around the world could come here and kids from here could go around the world. And we learn something about one another. Did it bring about world peace? No, but you know, it didn't hurt. It must have helped. You yeah, know, it in, yeah. in, in, uh, taught millions of people things that that they wouldn't have known otherwise, and gave millions of people a little bit more appreciation, both of our culture and of other cultures. And I got to thinking, well, you know, like we're kind of like that today to each other. You know, yeah. I mean, people from. Boston don't know anything about people from Biloxi and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, then one of the proposals then is for public colleges, when you can't make private schools do anything, but for public schools, create some kind of exchange program where kids go spend a year at some place that's completely alien to their experience. And so then, uh, you know, if that happened, if that existed... After 15 years, you'd have this army of however many million people who had done this and participated in this program. It'd have to be voluntary. You can't coerce people to do something like this. But in 15 years, you'd have a critical mass of people who at least were making some kind of effort.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a very intriguing idea. Aside from your own book, of course, do you have any other suggestions for further reading for those looking to gain context on you know, how we arrived at our current political state?
1: Mm, Anything come to mind? Okay, that's a good question. Is one I have not been asked <laughs> on this book tour. Uh, well, none compared to If We Can Keep It, of course. But, uh, sure.
0: One uh, <laughs> <laughs> <What> and only. <laughs>
1: but, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are dozens of books on this topic. Uh, mostly they kind of fall into, um, most of them are a little bit more political sciencey. They're a little bit more focused on Congress. Um, If people are interested in that sort of thing, uh, there's a book I cite toward the end. I, I forget the authors. I always forget their names. It's two guys. But the book is called Asymmetric Politics. Asymmetric Politics. And it does a very good job of explaining how the Democratic and Republican parties became different things okay so in other words like there's this whole school of political science in american history that defines a political party as having this certain set of characteristics mm-hmm. and that was true when that was that writing was done when that literature was produced democrats and republicans both you know exhibited those sets of characteristics mm-hmm. But these guys, Grossman I think is one of them, and the other one I forget, the authors of Asymmetric Politics came along and said, uh, well, the parties don't exhibit those characteristics anymore. The Democrats still sort of do. The Republicans don't really anymore. And Mm -hmm. here's the characteristics the Republicans exhibit, and here's the characteristics the Democrats exhibit. That, I think, is an interesting and valuable book. I, I think people who aren't immersed in this literature will learn. Not as much from, <laughs> from <Sure. laughs> of course, as they learn from my book. But they'll, they'll learn a lot from that book. One other that I'll mention really quickly is a book by a historian uh, at Colgate named Sam Rosenfeld called The Polarizers. It's a book also, it's a history of our political parties. And the political parties are a big part of my story, too, mm-hmm. um, because th- our parties, for a lot of complicated historical reasons that we won't go into now, there used to be a lot of overlap in our parties, and they weren't ideologically coherent. And what has changed, the big change really of the last 40 years, is that our parties became ideologically coherent and that overlap disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Rosenfeld tells that story very well. Um, so, those are a couple books that I, I think, you know, if people are interested in mine, they might want to pick up afterwards.
0: Okay, excellent. Yeah, thank you for the, for the suggestions. Sure. Um, and thank you again, Michael, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Great and to be here.
0: Thanks. So the new book is If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved by Michael Tomaski. Uh, be sure to check it out. It's very informative uh, and concise. And that's all the time we have for today's podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lazer, and have a good evening.